Well, I'm sure you're you're probably uh, dismayed to find me up here and not Paul Wilson. I'm a little dismayed myself. I, I found out, in fact, that I was going to be preaching this morning at 12:37 um, a.m. So it was a good uh, good object lesson and just desperate prayer dependence on the Lord. Um, and we're actually going to be I'm going to be recycling some notes um, from a, a message that I gave at a campus ministry the East, at a central of the Baptist Student Union earlier this month. And I'd wrestled back and forth with what text I should be in for the study that night and decided on a few different ones. Um, the Lord continued to draw me to the text we'll be in this morning. And, and late that week, I finally listened to his prompting and I settled in the Gospel of John. Um, so we'll be in, in John chapter 3. Um, specifically, I was drawn to... The conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, probably one of the most well-known passages in the Gospel of John. And this morning, I simply just want us to think about one of the most basic and fundamental aspects of our Christian faith, and yet also one of the deepest and the richest, and that's just the concept of saving faith. We believe as Christians that we're saved, we're justified before a holy God on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone, and yet I think for many, faith is a concept that's hard to define, um, and more than that, true faith is hard to distinguish from a false faith. Um, there, there are many kinds of faith, many kinds of, of even Christian-type faiths. If you were here for equipping hour this morning, all of them would say that they have faith. All of these people with New Age beliefs and these different sects of Christianity that incorporate um, heretical elements... Um, so how do we distinguish true faith from a, a false faith which professes and confesses some of the same Christian truths and yet covers up, as, as Hebrews calls it, an evil, unbelieving heart causing some to fall away from the living God? We, we see that all the time, especially in our, our culture today, people falling away from professing Christianity. It's very popular, very um, in right now to deconstruct your faith, um, to pick apart the things that you once confessed, once believed and to reject them altogether. Um, and they demonstrate that they were never of us. They never had true faith, as, as John says in his, his letters in the New Testament. It's even possible for, for you and I to deceive ourselves into thinking that we have genuine faith, that we're right with God and covered by the blood of Christ, even though we don't know him and he doesn't know us. He doesn't acknowledge us in a way that would, would benefit us or, or save us. Jesus says in Matthew, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on the day of judgment, there will be many professing Christians who claim to know and to believe in Jesus, who to have done miracles, mighty works in the name of Jesus, to have lived a life of ministry and of service to Jesus, whom Jesus will not save from the wrath of God, who won't recognize or acknowledge before the Father. So obviously this is something that we have to get right. At the very basic level, Christian faith, um, true faith is something that we have to get right, true belief. We must be able to understand what is true faith, where true faith comes from. And in order to do that, I would argue we must understand what it means to be born again. That's the basic Christian experience. We talked about the difference between false experiences, relying on false experiences, not rooted in truth in the equipping hour. And, and and, but having that true experience that we, we don't manufacture in and of ourselves, but we do go through, we experience in the new birth. We as evangelical Christians tend to call ourselves born-again Christians. It's a very popular term um, in our faith today. And, and really that, that phrase, born-again Christians, it's a repetition, right? To be born again is to be a Christian. There, there's no such thing as a Christian who is not 
born again. They're one and the same thing. And Jesus tells us in order to see or to enter the kingdom of God in John 3, to enter the inheritance of Christ, the salvation of Jesus, you must be born again. It's a strength word there. You must be born again. It's non-negotiable. You must be born again or you will die in your sins. You must experience this or you will die eternally. You will suffer for your sin in hell. And because I don't want ever to assume that everyone in a room understands what that means or has been personally born again, I want to go to that passage and by God's grace explain from the words of Jesus what the new birth is, why it is necessary and how you may be born again. And though the term born again, it's still widely used in our kind of evangelical culture today. I think the necessity of the new birth, the need for the new birth before anything else is something that is all too often neglected in preaching and teaching in our our modern churches. And I would argue that the new birth is largely neglected in popular preaching today because the new birth is something that man cannot do, something that man cannot achieve, something that man cannot work up in himself morally or experientially. And it doesn't jive with the modern conception of Christianity because Christianity, like so many other things in our culture, has been reduced to a matter of personal self-identification, personal identity, right? Self-identity is the center point of modern theology. Self-identity is the center point of modern gender theory, right? You are what you will yourself to be. You're not what God has willed you to be. You're not what other people recognize you or will you to be. You are as you define yourself, So how does one become a Christian in that type of thinking? The answer to that question in a man-centered, self-identity kind of theology is you are a Christian because you make yourself a Christian. right? You decide to be a Christian. You you sign up. You you sign a card. You you make a decision. You pray a prayer. You decide when and how and, and how far you follow God. And you draw that line out into church membership, right? You are a part of a church because you decide, right? And, and we have this, this kind of church shopping that goes on. You pick what church you're a part of, if you're a member of a church at all, based on what that church can offer you, based on the requirements that you have for a church. And at the root of this way of thinking is the misconception that you can become a member of God's kingdom, of God's family, merely because you elect yourself to be. Even if you don't know what that means. All that is required for you to be a Christian is that you decide to be a Christian. And in one sense, that thinking is too simple. Because much more than that is required for you to be right with God. God is not waiting for you to show him attention. He's not waiting for you to vote for him, to cast a vote for him, against the devil and for him. Um, In one sense, that is much too simple because much more is required. It is required that you be covered by the blood of Christ. That you be justified by faith, true faith. But in another sense, that kind of thinking is, is too, too complex. Because if God is waiting for you to choose him before he graciously saves you, he would be waiting a very long time. Right? Man does not naturally choose God. No man naturally chooses God. And it, it's because of that reality that the new birth of God, as described in John 3, is absolutely essential for someone to be saved. There's no true faith. There's no true repentance without the new birth. That kind of thinking has saturated our culture because of a massive Christianized effort based on a wrong doctrine of man, a wrong doctrine of God, a wrong doctrine of salvation. It tells people that salvation is merely a matter of personal choice. Salvation is what you make it to be. And essentially what it is is a soft core form of legalism. You end up saving yourself. 
Right? God may be the instrument to that, but you're the cause of it. You're the cause of your own salvation. That, that really, it's heretical. It's anti-Christian, and it is the, the common method of evangelism today. The common method in 90% of our Christian churches, that God is just waiting for people to say yes to him. Waiting for someone, anyone, to show him attention. And then he would benefit them. So I want to I take some time this morning to look at that. To look how, how Jesus says we may enter salvation, enter the kingdom of God. So I'm going to read the text um, in John 3. I'm actually going to back up and start in verse 23 of John 2. And then I'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. But starting in verse 23, it says, Now when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the Spirit is is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who has been born of the spirit. Father, I thank you for uh, this time together that we have in your word. I, I pray, Lord, for um, Paul and Randy and their families, God, that you would heal them quickly, God, that you would um, ease their, their pain, um, their sickness, God. I pray that you would encourage us together in your word, Lord, that you would be strong in my weakness. You would be wise in my foolishness, Lord, that you would um, be with my mind and my mouth. Keep me from teaching, preaching things which are not in accordance with your word. Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we need it, encourage us and comfort us in Christ where needed, Lord, that the name of Christ to be exalted in our worship together in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so as we approach this text this morning, I think it's important to keep in mind that the, the chapter divisions and the verses that we have in the Scripture are not original, right? They're not inspired. They're, they're a great tool. Um, they're added to help us reference Scripture, to help us memorize Scripture. Um, but sometimes they have kind of the opposite effect, and they can... Um, in our minds, sort of break up our reading of Scripture. And we think that literary units in the text begin at the chapter divisions. So for many people, when they're starting to read the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, they start in chapter 3, verse 1. That's where the, the literary unit starts in their minds. But in actuality, I would say it starts at the beginning of, or at the end, rather, of John chapter 2, in verse 23. This is the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And we see there the context is his ministry in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And it says this, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs, which he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus' ministry here appears to be going rather well. Jesus' signs are apparently successful, right? This is the point of his signs, to verify that he is from God, that he is the Son of God. And he draws a crowd. He elicits a very positive response from his audience. They even profess faith in Christ. They profess belief. They even make decisions for Christ. The word here in the Greek for believed is pistuo. It's the verb form of the word pistis, which is consistently the word in the New Testament for faith. They do have a kind of faith here, a kind of belief. Um, they're not lying when they say that they believe. They do believe him in some, some form, in some way. These people really do believe. They have a kind of faith and they profess that faith on the spot. And really, if you just take this chunk of Scripture and separate it from the conversation that comes afterward, um, or even from verse 24, this is everything that our modern form of evangelism tries to get people to do. Jesus' ministry strategy is working here. He's drawn people in with the signs, and he's um, convinced them of his truthfulness with the evidence. He's persuaded them to choose him, to believe him, to believe in him. And if these people were in some of our churches today, we would have marched them down the aisle. We would have had them sign a decision card. They would be halfway down to the baptistry. They'd be signed up for a new believers class. We would be counting their decisions for our records, posting that on Facebook. We had this many decisions today. This many people came to Christ. This is an amazing work, and we'd be adding them to our membership role. Everything that we see here is everything that our modern form of evangelism, our outreach to the culture, tries to elicit. But, but Jesus' response here is shocking. And I think it would irritate every seeker-sensitive church pastor. It would offend all of our traveling evangelists. It would dismay the church growth gurus and the mission strategists. Because Jesus here, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Right? This is a golden opportunity for Christ to, to expand his platform, to grow his church membership, to, to be able to say, look, I am a revivalist. Where I go, revival breaks out. But Jesus, on his part, does not entrust himself, was not entrusting himself to them. The word for entrusting here, it's the same verb in a different tense that was used for those who believe. The same verb, same verb form of pistis, of faith. So many profess to believe in Christ here in Jerusalem at the Passover, but Jesus does not believe. It says, Jesus does not have faith here. He does not believe their profession. You could really transfer the verse, you could translate the verse this way. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe them. Jesus did not believe their belief. Why? Because it it tells us that Jesus could see what was in them. He knew what was in their hearts. He needed no one to tell him whether they truly possessed the faith that they professed. So there is here in this passage on the part of the Jews in Jerusalem a kind of faith that does not save, a kind of faith that Jesus does not accept, that Jesus does not believe. And a profession of faith is meaningless here because there's no true substance to what they claim to believe. It's not the right kind of faith. But more than that, Jesus does not believe the professing believers here in John 2 because of what he knows to be true about all men. Not just about these men. That's what it says here in the passage. It doesn't say Jesus knew what was in these men specifically. Or that Jesus had had experience with these individuals. So he knew not to trust what they were saying. It says because he knew all people. Because he knew all men. 
And he needed no one to bear witness about man. That is mankind generally. So there's, there's something that is true about every single human being that makes a mere profession of faith meaningless. So our first question this morning is, is what is in man that keeps us from a true belief that Christ will accept? What is in man? And obviously salvation and saving faith are not here a matter of merely personal choice or human will. If it was only up to the decision of the people believing in Jesus, Jesus would have accepted them. If Jesus was so desperate to have people show him attention, show him approval, he would be leaping at the chance to draw them into the fold. But that's not what's happening. That's not, that's not what happens or what is happening here. The beginning of John tells us that those who received Christ in John 1, who believed in his name, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's something that God must first do in every human being before their willing choice to believe in Christ has any sort of legitimacy. You, you can't be saved or receive Christ merely by making a profession of faith, by praying a prayer, making a decision. There's something else that is required, something else that makes man a Christian, something begun and completed by God. And there must be true faith must be given by God because of what is already in man, what Jesus sees to be true in man. And what Jesus knew to be in man was the wickedness and the deceitfulness of every human heart. We see in John 3, verse 18, after the classic verse in in verse 16 that we used to tell people that if they just choose to believe, they'll receive eternal life. The Holy Spirit says this through John. It says, He who believes in Him, in Jesus, is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Men naturally hate the light because the dark covers their sin and allows them to stay in it. And in John 1, it says that Jesus, the true light, he enlightens everyone. He exposes everyone. And because Jesus was the light, when he came to his own people and the Jews, they did not receive him because they were not born of God, because they loved their sin. And that is why people do not naturally believe in Jesus. There is no person on this earth who rejects Jesus or rejects God who does not believe already because he or she does not have enough evidence to believe. Because they have not been told the gospel in the right way. Because they've not been convinced or persuaded to become a member of God's kingdom. Every person disobeys and rejects Christ because they love their sin. Romans 1 through 3, Paul Wilson talks about this all the time. It tells us that the state of every unbelieving person is every human naturally rejects God as creator, exchanges that truth for the lie and worships themselves rather than God. Every unbeliever naturally hates God because of their love for their sin. No one is good. Paul tells us in Romans 3, no one seeks for God. No one's looking for God. Everyone is running from God. There may be a God-shaped hole in every human heart, whatever, whatever that means, but the human heart naturally beats with hatred for God. There is an inherent hostility, an inherent opposition to God. That's what the Bible says. If you've, if you've been one of our small, if you've been in one of our small groups that's studying through the doctrines of grace in the Old Testament, you remember God's diagnosis of mankind in Genesis 6-5. God says this, it says, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil, always. Some Bible versions add the phrase, from his youth, from his 
infancy, every intention of man's heart is evil. It's rebellion against God. And it's for that reason that the Bible also describes man as dead in trespasses and sin. Unable to believe. Unable to exert any sort of positive influence, positive force toward the Lord. So when Jesus sees the belief of these natural people, these these fleshly and earthly people here in John 2, he knows better than to believe their profession. He knows what is in man. He knows that the kind of belief that people are capable of in and of themselves is nothing but man-centered idolatry that makes God a needy servant of man. A beggar pleading with people to vote for him and not the gracious, merciful, condescending Savior that Jesus is. Jesus is not looking for the acceptance of man anywhere in this text. This is a highly offensive text to our modern doctrine of God, our modern doctrine of salvation. Jesus doesn't need their acceptance. They need his. That's the point. It's not a matter of personal identification. They need Jesus' acceptance so they will never see the kingdom of God. Jesus is not standing at the door, knocking, hoping that you will let him into your heart. At no point is is there an evangelical bent to that, that passage in Revelation. He's writing to Christians there in Revelation. And a man-centered, evil, unbelieving faith that Jesus rejects always acts like it is doing Jesus a favor by believing. Like it is doing something, doing God a favor for joining his team. But true, biblical, godly faith, it desperately pleads for God's approval because it recognizes your own spiritual poverty. There is nothing in you that God would want. God is not so desperate to have you that he has to just leave heaven. Right? He's not, he's not so driven by this sort of romanticized love that he recklessly abandons his, his place in heaven, dies on the cross, not knowing if anyone is going to choose him or to believe in him. But that's, that's the Jesus that we are told to believe in, in in much of our modern culture today, in much of our modern church culture today. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the judge. We need Him to accept us and not the other way around. So we see that, firstly, what is in man? Secondly, we see Nicodemus, the example of man. Because here in the beginning of John 3, we see an example of an individual with this wrong kind of faith. And it's really probably the best example that man could come up with, of someone who would entice God to save him based on his profession. Firstly, here it says Nicodemus is a man. He's identified as a man. And that seems obvious, hardly worth noting. But if you look at the immediate context here in John 2.24, you can see a parallel that's being drawn here between Nicodemus and those whom Jesus did not believe. It's more obvious in the Greek concerning why Nicodemus is mentioned here, but just listen to the link in this text. It says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man. For he himself knew what was in man. And here the next verse. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if he's not a member of the actual group that Jesus did not believe, he's at least representative of that group. And really he's representative of mankind in general. He's a representative of man. And really he's, he's a picture of the best that man has to offer. Someone that we would choose to represent us before God. Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. The word Pharisee has a negative connotation to us in modern times, right? It's it's seen as a legalist. It's it's used as an insult. 
But in the time of Jesus, that title meant something. Pharisee was a title of really religious nobility, of respect, of competence and accomplishment. The Pharisees were the most spiritual, the most knowledgeable, the most mature and devout and godly among the people. They were revered in Israel. Nicodemus is is also a Greek name. It points to the fact that he is likely a Hellenized Jew, raised and educated in the most advanced system of learning in the world at the time. He's likely from a wealthy family. He's furthermore a ruler or a commander of the Jews. He bears civil authority as well as spiritual by virtue of his station. This man, he's first among the Jews, the people of God. This man was successful and influential. He was wise and respected. He has the wealth. He has the education and the credentials. He's got the connections. He's got the knowledge and the spiritual devotion. He has all the outward appearances which appeal to the cultural religion around him. He has all the outward appearances that appeal to us today. We would listen to this guy's podcast. He'd be selling a lot of books. He'd be speaking at a lot of conferences today. He'd be a teaching fellow at a seminary. He might be on the board at the Gospel Coalition. We would think much of this guy. And if we were to see Nicodemus in our time, we might very well consider him a great man of God. Based on what we can see outwardly, what he has exhibited in his life, he's the best of what mankind has to offer. He's a prime example of our own spiritual achievements. And like that group of professing believers before him, Nicodemus appears to accept that Jesus is from God. He professes belief in Jesus. And as an older man and one of of such influence and such station, it seems that Nicodemus is trying to pay Jesus great honor here. He's the one that comes to Jesus. He doesn't send a servant to summon Jesus to him. He actually comes personally himself. More than that, even though he's older and a rabbi, he speaks first to Jesus. That's a sign of respect, a sign of deference in the culture at the time. And he acknowledges him as a rabbi And a messenger from God, we see in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's a really nice thing to say to someone, right? That's a much more positive reaction than we see from the Pharisees through the rest of this gospel. A much more positive reaction than any of the other Pharisees had to say about Jesus. And it would be natural for one of Nicodemus' stature to expect a similar honor, a similar compliment from Jesus in return. Right? Nicodemus has complimented Jesus very well. He's, he's come to him, he's deferred to him, and now he is probably sitting here in his spiritual pride thinking, wow, what is Jesus going to say about me? How can Jesus repay this compliment in turn? But Jesus is not interested in what man or Nicodemus here has to offer. And he ignores the niceties, he ignores the the conversation, and he gets straight to the heart of the matter in verse 3. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, amen, amen. Jesus stresses the importance of what he's saying. And the phrase here, born again in this text, it's literally translated born from above. Truly, unless you are born from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. And we see contextually Nicodemus understands it as a new birth, a second birth. And he's shocked by it. Nicodemus is one of the most educated and cultured and accomplished, well-known, pious people of his time. He's devoted his life to studying the scriptures and to seeing the kingdom of God come, to seeing the Messiah. 
I'd be willing to argue that Nicodemus' religious life outwardly would put ours to shame. His study of the Word of God, his time spent in the Word of God would dwarf ours today. But Jesus effectively dismisses every accomplishment and claim that Nicodemus had and instead insists that only a new birth, a birth from above, a work of God is enough to see the kingdom. Right? Nicodemus is a rabbi himself. We, we can give Nicodemus enough credit here um, that he is not confused by the metaphor that Jesus is using. Right? He doesn't literally think that he has to go jump into his mother's womb to be born again. He's not trying to find where his mother lives He's not trying to, um, to enact that physically. He is understanding the, the language that Jesus is using here. And Nicodemus challenges Jesus' statement. Here in verse 4, he uses another metaphorical question. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is not confused here. He's offended by what Jesus is saying. He's struck by what Jesus is saying. John, John MacArthur paraphrases Nicodemus' protest this way when he says, I can't start all over. It's too late. I've gone too far in this religious system to start over. There's no hope for me if I must begin from the beginning. Nicodemus has spent his life doing things for God, doing things for the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus insists that unless God does something in Nicodemus, he will never see God. And we might have much the same protest to Jesus' statement if we really were to apply that to our own hearts. Jesus, I, I prayed a prayer. I invited you into my heart. And Jesus says, you must be born again. I walked an aisle. I signed a card. I was baptized. I lead a Bible study now. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Jesus, I give to the poor. I pay my tithe. I attend faithfully. I'm a member at a church. I serve the church. I pray and I read my Bible all the time. I'm going to seminary. And Jesus says, you must be born again. There is no spiritual achievement in this life that impresses God. There's nothing you can do that can impress God. There is truly no service in the sense of us giving a gift to God that we render unto God. Who has given God a gift that he can be repaid? The rhetorical question is, the answer to that rhetorical question is no one. No one can give God a gift. Right? I heard um, during the Christmas season this year from a couple different pastors near our town that the phrase was, this Christmas, give God the greatest gift you could ever give him. You. And I have to admit, I saw it on Facebook and I, I really had to restrain myself. That old stage cage Calvinist was like roaring up in me and I was like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really comment and take this apart, but... I mean, really, isn't that the, the bent of most people's faith? I have given God a gift myself. Here I am, God. I surrender to you, God. Here is all that you've ever wanted. Here is what you died for, God. Here I am. And Nicodemus is essentially offering himself there when he comes to Jesus at night. And Jesus is saying, I'm not interested in what you can offer me. There is something you must receive, something you must experience, something that God must do. See, it doesn't matter whether you're old or young, elite or common, religious or pagan, a professing Christian or a staunch atheist. If you have not been born again, you're dead in your sin. Full stop. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how accomplished you are, how educated you are, how well-schooled in theology you are. Unless you are born again, you are dead in your sin and you are on your way to hell. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's what we must proclaim when we preach the gospel. And we need to notice here that Jesus' statement concerning the new birth, it's not a command. 
It's a declaration. Jesus is not telling Nicodemus, see to it that you are born again. Make sure you get born again. Do what you need to do, Nicodemus, to get born again. He's not commanding Nicodemus to be born again here. He is telling Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless you are born again. He's not saying believe and you will be born again. Jesus is telling us that unless we are born from above, unless we are born from God, we cannot truly believe. And until that happens, it doesn't matter whether we profess belief or not. We are dead. So what can we do? What can Nicodemus do? That's essentially Nicodemus' question here to Jesus. If not this, then what? If doing this doesn't matter, then what can I do? What more can I do than what I've done? Jesus, do you not see this record of faithfulness that I have? What else can I do? If all this doesn't count, what can I do to see the kingdom? And Jesus answers in verse 5, not with the work of man, but with the miraculous work of God. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and the Spirit. This verse is often misinterpreted. It's mistakenly understood as a reference to two experiences. A baptism of water, right? This is a really good proof text for those who believe that you must be baptized to be saved, right? You regenerate yourself. And this goes right back to the pride of man. You aren't born again? Well, just go get baptized and you can be born again. This is how you do it. This is what you can do to make yourself born again. The second experience is often this, this later kind of esoteric baptism of the spirit, which makes you a truly spiritual Christian. So you make yourself a part of the, a part of the faith by what you do, by baptizing yourself. And then you wait for the spirit of God to fall on you later. And that's where you truly become a powerful Christian, a spirit-led Christian. But being born of water and spirit, it's rightly understood as a single experience. And, and it's really an explanation of what it means to be born from above. Jesus is using the same language here. He is further explaining, further clarifying what it means to be born again. Remember that Jesus is speaking with a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a teacher of Israel, a teacher of the Old Testament. And Jesus here is making a reference to the Old Testament. Specifically in Ezekiel 36, if you turn there with me. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36. I'm just going to start in verse 22, where Jesus in the Old Testament promises to do this for his people. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight, and I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. And you will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers. So you will be my people. And I will be your God. 
This is what happens in the new birth, the birth from above. It's something initiated and performed by God, not for the sake of his people, but for the sake of his own name. It's performed on God, something performed by God, something initiated and performed by God on guilty sinners in order to save them for his own glory. He sprinkles us with clean water. He takes away our sin and places it on the shoulders of Christ on the cross. He gives us new hearts that love him instead of hating him. He makes us willing and able to believe, willing and able to obey. He makes us spiritually alive. And it's that miracle of of new birth that Paul summarizes in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, where Paul says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we also, we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4 it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, we know this well, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. This is what we call regeneration. God making dead sinners spiritually alive completely by grace. Completely by His own initiative. Completely according to His own will for His own glory alone. God is not healing the spiritually sick or rewarding the spiritually wise who choose to follow Christ. He is raising the spiritually dead. And Jesus makes clear in verse 6 of John 3. This is something we can never do ourselves. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Our human nature cannot give birth to saving faith. Our human nature is not capable of giving birth to spiritual things, to spiritual understandings. That's something that has to come from the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus tells us how that works in verses 7-8. through eight. We see here, fourthly, how men are born again. How men are born again. In verse 7, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Jesus plainly says here that this work of regeneration, this birth from above, is the work of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, in his own time, and in whom he chooses. We see that God decides who will be saved and not man. Salvation belongs completely to our God and to the Lamb. That is the theme of heaven's praises for eternity. Salvation belongs completely to our God. And that's the truth here in regeneration. Salvation belongs completely to our God. God decides the extent of salvation. God decides the comprehensive nature of salvation. God decides the recipients of salvation. It is all of God from beginning to end. 
The Spirit, it says here, and it's not comparing. We talked about the New Age earlier this morning, the the impersonalization of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not being compared to the wind here. Right? The Holy Spirit is not a wind. It's not, He is not a force. Um, He is a He. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. And that's why Jesus is saying this here. It is according to the Spirit's will. But what is being compared to wind is our conversion. Because it's inward, it's secret, we don't see it happening, but we see its results. And just as God commands the wind, we don't command the wind. God commands the wind. God makes the wind blow. So the Holy Spirit commands salvation and commands conversion and regeneration. The Holy Spirit brings new life inwardly and secretly. But just as the effects of the wind are obvious to us, so it is with the Holy Spirit's inward working. Because he produces obvious outward change in the one who is born again. And that's the biggest difference between the gospel of salvation by God's converting grace and the man-centered gospel of salvation by human decision. Right? God's grace and regeneration does not stop at conversion. God's grace and regeneration continues to work in sanctification. And those who are truly converted, and, and those who are truly converted are made inwardly and outwardly more like Jesus Christ. It's the same work of grace. See, we put these labels on different stages of that work, but it is one work of salvation, one work of grace that God begins, God initiates, God continues, and God completes. They are made morally, those who are sanctified, they are made morally what they are already declared to be legally in justification. But a doctrine of salvation through human will, it doesn't offer anything of lasting power or of transformation for the Christian life after conversion. If you were converted by human will or human decision, all you have is human will to help you live the Christian life. That's all you have to persevere. Right? And that's why, you know, the most inconsistent phrase that I've heard from from this kind of modern Baptistic theology is once you choose it, talking about salvation, you can't lose it. Once you choose it, you can't lose it. Well, why not? If you can choose it, can't you later unchoose it? Can't you, can't you neglect it, reject it, fall away? And in, in a sense, those who reject the perseverance of the saints, they are more consistent theologically than those Baptists who hold the perseverance of the saints, but they reject the idea that regeneration precedes faith. You, you can't have it your own way like that. It, it is one or the other. Salvation is all of God or it's all of man. There is no mixture of the two. And that's why you see someone who makes an emotional decision for Christ, who is told that now on the basis of that emotional experience, that decision, that they are saved. And they struggle to live in anything like Christian holiness until the time that they either have another mountaintop experience, another mountaintop emotional experience that distracts them from their sin for a brief moment, or the time that they fall away from the professing faith altogether because they're unable to overcome the sin that still enslaves them. And if you want to see a perfect example of that kind of vicious cycle, look to the largest church camp in the world. It's 45 minutes from here. You will see someone go from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. They will choose Christ every summer. They will, and we've even come up with a new theological word to encompass it, right? We call it rededication. Right? Because if salvation is all a matter of you choosing something, Well, that doesn't work so well two months out when you come home and you live like Satan for the rest of the year. But then you come back and you can always rededicate yourself. You can re-up your salvation. 
It's like an insurance contract. Why don't you sign up with us for another year? That's the human doctrine of salvation right there. And it's a vicious cycle because what it leads to is either someone who is addicted to those emotional experiences. Their assurance, their hope of salvation only lies in events. Or they become so prideful that they set the bar of Christian holiness so low that they consider themselves saved on the basis of one experience that they made a long time ago. Or they fall away from the faith altogether. As I said, we don't command the wind even more so. We don't command the coming and going of the Holy Spirit in conversion. To use a well-known word to us, the Spirit is sovereign. He does what He pleases in salvation and in regeneration and in sanctification because the Holy Spirit is God. And God does what He pleases, where He pleases, when He pleases, in whom He pleases. But how does He bring the new birth? How are men born again? This is the last point. How men are born again? 1 Peter 1.3 tells us that God, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. And in verse 23 of that chapter, He tells us how. It says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, of the will or the effort of man, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Paul tells us in Romans 10, we were in that this morning, that faith, true saving faith, true belief, comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. The Holy Spirit, He takes the gospel of salvation in Jesus, the rescue from the penalty of our sin before a holy God through the perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Christ. He takes the truth about God's law, the conviction of our sin, the condemnation that we are under for those who do not already believe in Christ. And He takes that gospel message and He drives it into the heart of sinners. He uses it to wake them up and to shine the light of Christ into their darkened hearts, to raise them to life. The Spirit gives them ears to hear and eyes to see the kingdom of God. He gives them new hearts, causes them to be born again. The new birth is a work of God alone through the obedient preaching of God's people, of God's word alone. God's word alone is the means of regeneration. There is no name given under heaven, no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't hold to any sort of humble agnosticism like, uh, like J.A. Packer or John Stott that believes that maybe those who have not heard the gospel overseas, who have never heard the name of Jesus, may be saved. Why? Because the Bible tells us clearly we all have enough information, we all have enough revelation to condemn us before a holy God. The only way that you can be saved, that you can be regenerated, the only means that God has ordained is the preaching of the word of Christ. The preaching of the word of Christ. And those who believe that will rely on the word of Christ alone. There won't be tricks, there won't be gimmicks, there won't be sales, there won't be ads. There will be nothing to try to get people to come to Christ other than the preaching of the word of Christ. Offering that simple exhortation, that simple plea, be reconciled to God. That's what God uses. That is it. That is the only means of salvation. The responsibility of the Christian toward the lost is not to convince or to persuade people into the kingdom through your own eloquence or your own effort. It's to faithfully proclaim the message that God saves sinners in Jesus from the wrath of God to the glory of God. And to trust that the Spirit will drive that message into the heart of whomever He purposes to save. That's an amazing, a freeing thing for us. It frees us to simply joyfully proclaim the gospel to everyone that we meet, 
confident that the gospel will work. The word will do the work because the Holy Spirit works through it. There is one way to see and to enter the kingdom of God. To enter into Christ as our salvation. It's not by making a decision or walking an aisle, praying a prayer, or anything else that has to do with what you do or with what you say. When we come to Christ, truly come to Christ, we do resolve to believe in Him. We decide to follow Him. There is a, there's a man element of conversion. Right? There is a, a human response, a human responsibility. We profess and confess our faith in Him. But I would argue from now until Jesus returns that if you do those things with a genuine heart, it is because God has first caused you to be born again through the living and abiding Word of God. There may very well be some very earnest, very um, convicted, very faith-filled um, kids coming down to an altar at a big church camp. But it is not because of the method of evangelism that they have employed. It is simply because of the grace of God. Because there may have been some gospel present in that that warped and convoluted man-centered message. And God has used it despite the best efforts of the evangelist to save. Despite the best efforts of the evangelist to save. And if the basis of your assurance of salvation, the way that you know you are saved, is because of something you did, because you prayed a prayer, because you made a decision, and not because God raised you to new life. Apart from your will, apart from your effort, your profession of faith is not much different than that of Nicodemus. Really, your, your belief is the same as those men whom Jesus rejected. There is a sobering call here in this text to examine ourselves this morning. How do you know that you are in Christ? How do you know that you're saved, that Jesus believes, Jesus accepts your belief? And I'll just give you a simple test here. I can't, I can't infallibly determine that for you. That belongs to the Lord. But if your answer to that question, how do you know you're saved, begins with the word I. I prayed a prayer. I made a decision. I resolved to follow Christ. I believed back in the summer of 1992. I did this. I was baptized. I believed. Instead of beginning with the word God. God saved me. God opened my eyes. God gave me new life and faith in Christ. God gave me a new heart. You've missed it. If your answer to that question begins with I and not God, you have missed it. Your faith is not genuine. It's not enough to say that you believe. It's not enough to believe in the wrong way. The salvation of Christ and the kingdom of God are not matters of self-identity. They're matters of Christ's identity. We must be taken up into Christ. You don't get to just declare yourself a member of the kingdom. You must be born again. You must be raised to life. You must be given a new heart, new desires. It is a sad reality that there's nothing more common in the church today than the unregenerate Christian. The Christian who lives like the world, who loves like the world, who speaks like the world, who laughs like the world, who is enslaved to sin and lust in the flesh like the world, and yet believes himself to be a Christian because some preacher let him down an aisle and through a prayer, and declared him to be saved regardless of whether the Spirit had done anything in his heart. That is the most common version of a Christian that we have in our country today. It is the, I would say it's the biggest false gospel, the biggest heresy that we have in our church today, in the church today, rather. Jesus uses a strong word when he says, you must be born again. You can't cause the new birth in yourself, but you can seek it if by the grace of God you are given ears to hear what I'm saying to you. Cry out to God this morning. Seek him while he may be found. Cast yourself on his mercy. Repent of your pride 
if you need to. Your pride in your own religious accomplishments. And, and you need to. We all need to repent of that pride. Ask him to give you a new heart and new desires, a love for the Lord Jesus and not for your sin. Because without God doing that in you, you will die in your sin. Right? If you truly pray that prayer, asking the Lord for a new heart, for new desires, if you're praying that, it's because God is working in you. Because God has worked that in you. When you drink from the man-made well of, of human decisionism, you will always thirst again. You'll always come back to that drink again and again, going from event and event and conversion experience to conversion experience because your true need has not been met. Your true need has not been met. You are still thirsty. You're still under God's wrath. You're still dead in your sins. And over time, you may become desensitized to that thirst and you reckon yourself to be a Christian falsely because of any one or any number of those manufactured experiences, but your need is still there. But if by God's grace you are made alive in Christ through the word of God, you will never thirst again because in you is placed a fountain of living water welling up to new life. God's grace in you through Christ will continue to grow and develop and there will be no question of your true spiritual state because the results, the fruit, the effects of the wind, the effects of the Spirit's conversion will be obvious to all, including to you. Examine yourself this morning. How do you know that you're saved? Are you born again? It is not of human will, of blood, of human will exer- or exertion. It is only of God that we may be saved. Only of God that men become Christians. If you bow with me. Father, I thank you for um, this day. I thank you for the communion of the saints, Lord, the, the fellowship that is so sweet because we have unity in you. I thank, for, I thank you for your word, your faithfulness to your word, despite the, the weakness of the vessel, God. I pray that you would grow us together into um, saving faith, maturity in Christ, fruitfulness, Lord, born of a true faith, a true belief, a true repentance in Christ alone. Lord, I praise you. I praise you for the fact that salvation belongs only to you, solely to you, God. That you have saved us, not because of our own efforts, but because of your grace, despite our efforts, God. May you be glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.